The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. There are all kinds of ways that we come out. If you think about coming out as actually the process of confronting expectations that don't fit you, right? That is what the work of coming out is. Like what happens when we just go for broke and live the most authentic versions of ourselves? Good morning. We're trying something a little different this week on the next Big Idea Daily. So far in our young life as a podcast, we've focused on giving you actionable advice on topics like leadership, psychology, and creativity. You know, useful stuff. We're all about surfacing the latest research that will help you improve your life. But this week, we're going to be talking about someone else's life. We're going to be talking to Jesse Hempel, who wrote a memoir called The Family Outing. A memoir, you might be thinking, but this isn't your typical self-indulgent trip down memory lane. On the surface, it's the remarkable story of how every member of Jesse's immediate family came out in one way or another. Herself and her father is gay, one of her siblings is bi, the other is transgender, and her mother as a survivor of an especially disturbing close call with a serial killer. Now, maybe Jesse's isn't the most typical family, if there even is such a thing, but the story of how the family tore itself apart and put itself back together again is chock full of lessons that just might resonate with you. Lessons about memory, listening, and the importance of showing up. More than anything, it's about the art of getting along with a group of people that you, by all rights, should not get along with, your family of origin. After all, these are the people who raised you and imposed all their imperfections on you. The people who grew up in the house alongside you, who watched you go through all your awkward stages. People you have plenty of reason to resent. Jesse Hempel sure did. And after years where they were estranged to varying degrees, she and her family members started finding their way back to one another. But before that could happen, they had to agree on the facts of what happened in their childhood home. And those facts were harder to establish than you might think. Because as Jesse tells us, memory is unreliable, and admitting that is key. Even when all five members of my family tried in earnest to remember the events of our family life and align on our stories, nothing matched. That's because we each encode memories differently, and those memories have changed in the telling and retelling. So when we can't agree on what happened, it doesn't necessarily mean anyone is wrong. For example, nearly three years after my parents' marriage first came apart, they still hadn't divorced. My siblings and I remember scheduling a conference call to tell them we felt they should get the paperwork done already, fully separate their lives, move on. Evan remembers the empty college dorm room he was sitting in during his school break. Katya remembers taking the call from the bedroom of my house. I can even sort of hear the surprise in my dad's voice when he picks up and discovers all three of us, his kids, are on the line. As we remember it, we told them we thought they should just get a divorce already and move on. But neither of my parents has any memory of this call. Upon reflecting, this makes sense to me. Our parents' marriage was never about us. It was about them. So our opinions of when it should end weren't central to them like they were to us. Now, throughout my reporting, people's memories clashed. 
Mom remembered a dinner in 1989 that Dad was certain happened in 1982 and that I couldn't place at all. It was only when I let go of needing to be certain about the factual truth that I became open to a deeper, more collective experience. When I really listened to everyone, an emotional truth emerged, although there are some things in this book that not everyone remembers. Everyone agrees that this story represents the emotional truth, and that we're now clear that this is what is important. Well, hello, Jesse. Welcome to the next Big Idea Daily. I'm so excited to be here. Longtime listener, first time uh, caller, my caller, <laughs> first time guest. I've been ingesting your book over the last few days, really enjoying it and finding it much more applicable to my own life than I might have initially thought when I went to pick it up. But I wanted to just kind of first get into a little bit of the backstory of this book. Was this a story that you'd been thinking about for quite a long time? Yeah, I, you know, just since birth or so. Um, <laughs> but truly, this memoir, it lived inside me for as far back as I could remember. Fast forward a few years, right? It's um, early 2020. At this point, I'm working at LinkedIn. I'm hosting a podcast myself, Hello Monday. I'm a new mother. My wife has just had a baby. He's, uh, at this point, just a little bit more than a year old. And then, in the flash of a second, everything I know about that identity is called into question hmm. uh, with the onset of the pandemic. And we put the baby and the dog in the back of the Subaru and drove 18 hours south to Tupelo, Mississippi, where my in-laws lived. And suddenly, I didn't know who I was. Everything was up for review. I was mostly just depressed. Mm. And in this really quiet window of my life, the people that I ended up speaking to, and speaking to almost every day, were my family members. It was mm -hmm. my brother and my sister and my mother and my father. And that was kind of weird. Because if you had known us growing up, you would never think that we would be a family that would end up being close or even on speaking terms. And I got lost in the question, what happened to us that somehow over the course of our adulthood, we went from feeling very distant and frankly, very broken by the very notion of our family to feeling, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, feeling close. Mm -hmm. And I came to the thought that actually it has a lot to do with coming out. Coming out is something that all five of us did in one way or another. Before we came out, we were all people who were scared, tiny, and hiding. Mm -hmm. But the process of that work undertaken by each of us separately unlocked something. And the thing it unlocked allowed us to emerge as people who could know each other and ourselves the thumbnail description of your book is that it's about a family where everyone came out and that's sort of surprising. And, you know, it's kind of, at least in some quarters, described as an LGBTQ book or memoir. But to me, I didn't experience it as any kind of textbook coming out story in a way. It was much more this sort of complicated set of individuals going through very specific life experiences. And the truth that emerges from that is hard to categorize, really. It's just it's just a bunch of interesting people working their stuff out together. You know, I appreciate you saying that. And I also really want to challenge anybody listening to take a more open view on what it means to come out. As a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, I feel like we have taken that word for our own, right? To come out, you know, mm -hmm. has for a very long time now 
sort of reflected this idea of coming out of the closet, which involves coming out around our sexuality. But there are all kinds of ways that we come out. If you think about coming out as actually the process of confronting expectations that don't fit you, right? Mm -hmm. So, Michael, I think about how every person who is born into the world is born into a set of expectations, hopefully expectations that emerge out of love, right? There are Mm -hmm. what our parents want for us based on what they think about as what it means to live a good life. It's what our community wants for us. There's what our geography, our culture want for us. And then we're born in the world and we live for a while. And, you know, some cohort of people, who they are turns out to be not so different from what those expectations for them are. But usually that's not the case. Usually as we live in the world, the most authentic expression of ourselves turns out to be pretty far from the expectations that are put upon us at birth, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's a pretty small difference. Maybe you uh, were born into a family of baseball players, but you're actually a theater lover. And at some point, that's not such a small thing, actually. Yeah, well, yeah, that could be that could be uh, earth shattering. (laughs) But go ahead, it can be right. And the work around having to decide whether you are going to fake it till you make it on the baseball field and miss that ball in right field for your entire childhood, or whether you're finally going to like muster the courage to say, "I I really don't want to play baseball anymore, and I want to pursue these other interests." That, that can be a life, lifetime's work, right? So then you think about all the different ways in which we perhaps need to confront the expectations around us that don't fit and emerge as more authentic versions of ourselves. That is what the work of coming out is. And that's the territory that I really wanted to explore in this book. Like what happens when we just go for broke and live the most authentic yeah. versions of ourselves? I thought now we'd pivot to talking about the first of the big ideas that you presented to us. Memory is unreliable. Did you find yourself stumbling with your family through like, you know, disagreements about, no, that's not how it happened. That's not how it happened. There were so many disagreements like that. And, you know, when I began this book, I naively thought that we all get along. I was going to use my journalistic skills to interview everybody about the past. I was going to try to make it all line up and tell a story that all five of us could agree. Yeah, it happened. And in fact, it happened that way. Um, And what I discovered, of course, and, um, you know, you may be laughing at me right now as I say this, but of course we could not make our memories lined up even when we all tried in, like, with our best intention to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, there were so many times when I would be insistent that I remembered that when we first got to France and I was seven years old, uh, in April of 1982, my father had thrown me into a vat of grapes to smash them with the local kids <laughs> to make wine until my father finally said to me, I'm certain that that didn't happen because grape harvest is in August, uh-huh. not in April. So it couldn't have happened. And I would search back in my mind and think, well, how could I have imprinted it so strongly that I can see it in my memory, that I can mm-hmm. imagine it? I must be wrong about that. And that happens enough times And you humbly realize that you're wrong about enough things. And it leaves you open to the idea that maybe you can at least acknowledge that you may not be right, right? You don't have to Mm -hmm. say, I was wrong. You may just say, I I may not be right about a lot of the things that I remember. And and what does that do for you? It is amazing that 
you know, our memories really consist of those events that have some sort of emotional valence for us, you know, that really register with us, which is not the same as the set of events that occurred. So it does make you think like, you know, how many of my memories are sort of distorted by my own agenda, my own intentions, and really don't square up with other people's memories, much less do they square up with, you know, what really happened. It's a, it's a slippery question. They also question. change over time. Yes. Even if my memories are accurate in terms of events, I layer on my own meaning according to what's going on around me in the now, in the present, and what I'm looking to take from those events in the present. Yeah. I mean, you made me reflect on, I have had a few disputes over my life where just this, the other person, I couldn't agree on what had happened. And and my instinct is they're just wrong. Like, I have this memory. I know that I'm right. But we couldn't get past it. And I wonder with this realization that memories are individual like this and they're mutable over time, does that change how you relate to people now? Does it does it give you a sort of different perspective on your present tense life in a way? Like what memories are you laying down right now and what's going to be wrong about them later? I think it introduces an opportunity for grace, right? Mm. And here, we don't need to be right or wrong, right? Like your impulse, Michael, your impulse to say, well, ultimately, like you're just wrong because I know because my memory is telling me. Well, I don't think that we are called upon to issue an edict here to say, oh, no, Michael, actually, uh, your memory was wrong and that other person was right. But simply to introduce the opportunity for a little bit of gray area to say mm -hmm. it's OK to be in the question about whether or not we can believe my memory. It's okay to simply say, okay, well, you know, this is this is how it's going, but it also could be another way. And when you introduce that grace, actually everybody around you starts to seem a lot more compassionate. You start having better feelings towards everybody around you. Okay, so that does it for today's episode. Tomorrow, Jesse will be back to talk about the importance of listening. We all know it's important, but it's surprisingly hard to do right, especially with the people closest to you. You can get that and all of Jesse's insights on our Next Big Idea app, or just come on back tomorrow. See you then.